0: Everyone is thirsty. Maybe you're not physically thirsty, I am. Maybe you're not physically thirsty, but spiritually everyone in existence is thirsty. We're looking for something, someone to make us feel whole, to make us feel secure, to make us feel loved and significant. And everyone is on a very unique quest for this. And it can take us in completely different directions. Ask a cop in the middle of the night who works in the middle of the night. You have prostitutes, you have drug addicts trying to fill that void, trying to quench that thirst. Ask the parent who sees those thin lines across the wrist of their teenager. How about the man who abandons his wife and his kids for the allure of some greater love or some fantasy that he might have that he's going to find love. Ask the woman who's so addicted to prescription medication that she will lie, cheat, steal, risk her reputation and her future on that destructive habit. These things may feel like extreme examples, but we're truthfully all guilty at some level. Maybe it's that next trip that I take is going to do it for me, or that next thing I get and purchase is going to bring me the fulfillment. But we're all tempted to believe the lie. We're all tempted to believe that something other than Jesus Christ can quench our thirst. And so at the root of the destructive behavior or just the person who's not satisfied with Jesus, it's the root problem is still the same. I can find life on my own. I can find my thirst being quenched somewhere other than Jesus. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4. And in this passage, we see Jesus have this encounter with a Samaritan woman who is trying to quench her thirst. And as we work through this passage, we're going to see some amazing truths, some huge claims, some big claims by Jesus. And I pray that we'll be able to not only just... Take this story into our minds mentally, but we'll take it deep into our hearts, and we'll allow this to change who we are. So let's pray, and we're going to look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that brings us truth. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit within the believer, and we thank you for Jesus Christ who was died and rose again, and thank you for the baptisms today, Anderson, Ryland, Barrett, Colton and the testimony they made, God. And I pray that we as a church family will always remember the things we do and the things we say make an impact on these kids. And, God, we confess that we have all fallen short. and We thank you for your grace that reaches us even in those moments. And, God, I pray you'll take your word and use it to bring glory to your name and move us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And this is John the Baptist, if you haven't been here. Although Jesus himself did not baptize. We talked about that later, but his disciples would do that for him. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so how did Jesus learn that the Pharisees were worked up over this? Well, we don't know, but throughout the Gospels, and this is important, this will come back up here in a minute, Jesus sometimes uses omniscience. He just knows. He's God. He knows what's coming up, what's going to be next, and so sometimes he knows what's going on in people's hearts, or he always knew what was going on in people's hearts. Sometimes he engaged his divinity in that way where he would know these truths. Other times he said that the Father revealed these things through him through the Holy Spirit. The Father would show him what to do. We talked about that last week or the week before. Or it could just have been simply somebody told him, you know, these Pharisees are upset that you're baptizing more than John, and we're concerned about your popularity. That's the issue probably at stake here was the fact that Jesus was becoming more and more popular. And also, if you read the parallel account in Matthew where he talks about John, had been taken into custody, and so this could be the same timeline. And so Jesus withdraws from Galilee at that point where John was arrested. So regardless of what the reason is, Jesus and his disciples decide to make a track, to go somewhere out of Jerusalem, out of this area where they're at, and they track north. And so verse 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria is the name given to the land in between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. And so this area where I circled here, this is the area where Jesus was going to go through the blue line and where he was going to have this encounter with this lady. Now, if you keep the map up there for a second, Drew, um, a lot of people would take these other routes around. You see the other two options. Even though it was in a straight shot, oftentimes they wanted to avoid Samaria for various reasons. One was because criminals were active on these route right between in Samaria. They would look for these pilgrims going toward Jerusalem and they would attack them and rob them and steal from them. That would happen. Also, the Samaritans were a racially mixed group, partly Jew, partly Gentile, and the Jews did not want anything to do with these people. In fact, they had their own version of the Torah, they had a different version of history what the Hebrew history was. And so they would be what we would consider today a cult Christianity, they were a cult. They were not true Judaism. And so they just wanted to avoid these people altogether. And so a couple different reasons there where they could have been avoiding that area. Do you all have anybody in your family or maybe something happened in your family history that gets brought up 20, 30, even 50 years later, like something happens or occurs, and maybe it's really huge and significant, and maybe it's just something funny. Like my dad, every time we're together for some reason, he wants to bring up that I broke my foot with 30 seconds left in a soccer game in, in, in high school when we were clearly in command of the game, and it was just me being stupid and trying to be, like, just run over a guy, and he still brings it up to this day years and years later. Well, here we are today bringing up an event that took place 2,000 years ago of Jesus tracking down through this area of Samaria, and that he comes across this person, and here we are talking about it. Why is that still something we talk about? Why is it something that made it into Scripture? We know that everything that happened in Jesus' life certainly did not make it into the Scriptures. It's because Jesus had a divine appointment on this route. In fact, look back at the verse again. It says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. There was other ways to go to get there, more popular routes to get there. But Jesus had to pass through because he had a divine appointment, one that we're talking about here years and years later. Verse four. So he had to pass through Samaria and he came to a town uh, of Samaria called uh, Seklar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so they stop at Jacob's well for Jesus' divine appointment. And he sits down beside the well. So think about this for a second. Why did Jesus have to sit down by the well? Verse 6. So Jesus sat there because he was wearied as he was from his journey. And he was sitting beside the well because it was about the sixth hour, which would have been noon. So it's hot. He's thirsty. And he decides to take a break and they're hungry as well as we can see down in a few verses later because he sends his disciples off to get food from the town, and here he is sitting alone, and the Samaritan, his divine appointment, shows up. But it's significant. I don't want to just hurry past the fact that Jesus was weary. This is the same person that John talked about in chapter 1 if you were here. If not, please go back and read chapter 1 again where he says, the Word, which was Jesus, the Word was with God, The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You guys wait for me to do that every week, don't you? Um, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, in John chapter 1 it says, yet we find the creator of the universe wearied and hot from his journey. And so we see here that John's emphasizing the full humanity of Jesus. You see, when Jesus assumed a complete, he assumed a complete human nature with all its non-sinful, key word there, non-sinful limitations, but without in any way surrendering his divinity or his, 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 his being God. And it's really important that we remember that truth. And you may be sitting there like we know that, okay? That's, that's, we know that. We got that. We're, we're Orthodox believers. We understand. I was reminded Last weekend at a discipleship conference I went to that the fruit of our churches not preaching solid theology has now come back to us with a generation that's just so biblically illiterate when it comes to the truths of Scripture. And with the prevalence of the Internet and the ability to just every kid to search for anything he wants to search and find people who believe exactly the way that he believes or she believes – that it's so easy and students, young people, are just falling into the trap of just believing whatever they want to believe about Jesus. And they find lots of other people who believe the same thing. And it's important that we understand what the truth of Scripture is, that Jesus, in his humanity, experienced emotions. He was hungry. He was tired. He was weary. He wept. He struggled with temptation, yet never sinned, never gave in to it. And so we have Jesus who was truly a human being, yet Jesus also who was truly God. And it's important that we don't try to do some maneuvering to make it one thing or the other. He was both, all man and all God. And so I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus came and lived on this earth and went through the struggles that we go through, yet without sin as an example to us, but also that he can identify with us in our struggles. And what I love about Scripture is Scripture never denies the reality of how hard it is to live in these broken bodies in a broken world. If Jesus was wearied, you can get wearied. If Jesus struggled with emotions yet without sin, we're going to be tempted. And pastoring this church and knowing many of you very, very well, knowing myself well, knowing just the state of humanity, there is so much struggle with anxiety and depression and pain and hurt. And so many of us, we we see these things and we think, why is this happening? Well, I want you to just trust the fact and know the fact that we live in a world that's broken and we live in bodies that are broken and we're susceptible to these things. And we just have to embrace the fact that if Jesus was wearied, we're going to get wearied and we're going to get tired. And it shouldn't be a shock, but what we find great comfort in, the fact is we have a sympathetic Savior who never leaves us, never abandons us to ourselves and our own resources, but he helps us and guides us for His glory, and for our good through no matter what we face. I was reading a statistic this week that one in four adults will struggle with real mental illness during their lifetimes. And sometimes Christians have a very hard time accepting that reality of that. And there's no more reason to think that a Christian couldn't experience mental illness than they could experience getting sick and physical illness. And so I'd like to encourage and, and just really, really emphasize that if you find yourself in this place where you're just struggling to seek medical attention and counseling. But I'd also like to clarify for you that it's never an excuse to blame our illness for our sinful actions. We can't blame what we do and the decisions we make upon oh, I'm just that way. That's who I am. I've got this personality or this is just what, what, what I have in life. But the struggles that God allows us to go through as believers are opportunities to shine His glory and to show His greatness. I was reminded of this. I am going to say this, but Jerry did such a great job at the Veterans Day event down on the square the other day and sharing his story, his testimony, and went through combat, I mean, just a horrible situation. If you'd like to hear his testimony, he's going to be sharing it in this room at 1.15, 1.20 on Monday with the GCA students. I would encourage you to come and, and listen. But he took the situations that he went through and the struggles that he went through and continued to go through even after uh, coming out of the military and uses that for God's glory and got up and, and shared this so authentically and in such a real way and, and, and didn't just like watered down the gospel, but pointed toward Jesus and lifted up Jesus. And that's what he asked you and I to do. Instead of being having pity parties for ourselves and our situations and blaming everyone and everything on these situations, what we do is we point to Jesus, and we trust Jesus, and we get in the Word, and we memorize the Word, and we saturate our minds with the Word, and we just repeat the truth of Scripture again and, and again and again, because you will be wearied. And when I find myself being wearied, I go back to the gospel and go back to the truth of Scripture. Scripture Scriptures like 1 Corinthians 10.13 where it says, No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. That's his promise to his children. That, he, that you can find a way of escape. You don't have to give in to that. And then in Hebrews 4, 14-16, Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's what we're to do with that. We draw near with confidence to him to the throne of grace, that we can receive mercy and we find grace to help in times of need. And so we don't deny the reality of a broken world. If Jesus is weary, if Jesus wept, if Jesus went through these things, we can be sure we're going to go through them and they're going to feel like the world is coming down upon us. But what we know is we have a Savior who loves us and understands, and not only does he understand, he's there with us through it. And he is going to help us bring glory to himself through it. He promises that, and it's for our good. So Jesus sits down. And what I love about the fact that the next three verses, Jesus, as he's encountering this woman and talking to this woman, he breaks all the rules of his society, of his culture. Cultures have rules, right? We're not talking about sins. We're not talking about disobedience to laws. We're talking about those unspoken laws, those customs that cultures have. I started to wear a cap up here today and and be like, what are you doing? You can't wear a cap in here, right? Those kind of things, right? That that we're not allowed to do because it's not correct or it's not acceptable. Well, Jesus breaks every cultural rule here. Look at verse 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So what do we see here? We see several different levels of Jesus breaking out of the customs and rules of his day. First, he's a holy man. He's a rabbi. He has distinguished himself by teaching the law. And in this culture, a devout Jewish man would not allow them to be, themselves to be alone with a woman. And here he is at the well. And if a man did find himself alone with a woman, he certainly would not have engaged in conversation with this woman. He would have avoided it completely. And we'll see that next week when Jesus' disciples return, how shocked they are. But also the fact that, again, she's a Samaritan. And devout Jews just don't mix with Samaritans. They wouldn't have anything at all to do with them. They were unclean. They were worse than Gentiles. And then a devout Jew would especially not do this. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Eating and drinking together and certainly not sharing the same container as the lady, that would have never, ever, ever happen. And so I love that Jesus is not willing to allow his culture to dictate this divine appointment and how he's going to do ministry. He sees the need. He sees this woman who's hurting. He asked her for a drink of water. And and we'll find out in a a second, not only is this woman just an outcast from a Jewish standpoint, but she is, uh, somebody just flip on one of the light banks back there. I think we lost lights, the spotlights. Just flip on the first bank. Oh, Okay, we're back. Never mind. We're back. We're back. Um, and, so, and, and so we'll see that she's even an outcast among her own people. So she's not just an outcast from the Jewish perspective. She's an outcast among her own people. How do I know that? Look, verse 6 and 7. She's there at the sixth hour. What time did I say that was? It's, it's noon. All right. And she's coming from Samaria to draw water. And so the normal time for women to visit the well would have been the cooler time of day, of course. But she's there at the middle in the middle of the day. And women did not come out on their own to do these, this type of thing. They would come in groups, yet we find her there by herself. She's not a very respectable person, and we'll learn why next week or the week after, the next few weeks as we continue in this story. But she didn't like these women, I'm sure, in this village. The way they looked at her, the things they said about her, the gospel that happened about her. And so the last thing she would have wanted to do was put herself in the company of these, un, of these other women. But Jesus knows her story. He knows the rules of society, yet he engages in her because he didn't see her for the failures. And he didn't see her because she had a bad reputation. He didn't see her in that regard. He saw a real person with a real need. A real person with a real need. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. It's interesting throughout the gospel, John loves to record these conversations where Jesus has um, meets with people, and like he did with Nicodemus back in chapter 3, where he begins speaking at a heavenly level. He's speaking on these spiritual terms, yet people are scratching their head like, you know, I don't get it, right? Uh, born again, what is that about? I don't understand how you can be born again. It's kind of the same thing here with the, the living water. He, he's speaking in a heavenly language. He's talking about spiritual matters, yet the lady only wants to hear the physical. She only wants to hear, like, okay, you're going to get water from that well, right? And that's a great reminder for us for a couple different reasons. Ephesians clearly says that the battle that we're in is not against flesh and blood. It says it's a spiritual battle. And so you can't fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. Now, it sure doesn't mean that we go around trying to look for spiritual warfare under every rock and any other situation and everybody we talk to, it always has to come back to spiritual warfare so to speak. But just know that behind every situation, there is a spiritual battle that's happening. And so, therefore, if we're going to engage in the spiritual battle, we have to know how to fight those things and what weapons to use. And we understand and we don't get worked up over the fact that something happens and we we think, why did they do that or why is that happening? Because we know there's a spiritual battle that's taking place at a different level, and Jesus always engaged that level. He always went to that level because he knew ultimately it was a heart, it was a spiritual matter, and, and the way that I see sometimes we're guilty of forgetting this, a real practical way, is sometimes we will want to help people and give to people or meet needs with people, and, and I do this at times too, you know, I'm just going to give them 10 bucks to get out of my face, you know, just leave me alone, but the truth is While that may help them for a moment, it's not going to solve their eternal long-term problem. And so ultimately, people have a thirst that has to be met only in Jesus. And so if we're going to really help people, we help them first and foremost spiritually, even as we may come alongside them physically and help them. And so let's be sure that we're helping people by helping point them to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is offering real life. He's offering real life to her. And he doesn't care what gender she is, where she's from, her race, her moral background. Jesus is there to help her. And we need to remember, as we have our divine encounters, they need Jesus. And we know that here, right? It doesn't make the trip down here to our heart. We know that Jesus is what they need. But sometimes we get so caught up in the busyness that here we are walking past our divine appointments every day and we're unwilling to be inconvenienced for those. And not only do we unwilling to be inconvenienced for others, but we find ourselves guilty of the same thing the lady is guilty of, which is running toward counterfeit idols and counterfeit gods to fulfill the need and the thirst that she has. And so the woman, verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, how are you going to get this water, sir? You have nothing to draw water with. And the well is pretty deep over there. You're not going to get it, Jesus. So clearly, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand who Jesus is. And yes, the well was deep. It's still deep today. It's a well that actually is still there. It's at least 100 feet deep, probably deeper at the time of Christ. But Jesus says, you know, I'm talking about something other than just this kind of water that you can just gulp down. I'm talking about living water. Verse 12, and she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and did as did his sons and his livestock. So the woman's line of questioning at this point is for sure skeptical, maybe even a bit sarcastic, because she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. She's thinking, well, who is this guy, and why is he making these big, bold claims, and what is this living water stuff? Well, Jesus clarifies in verse 13. He says, okay, lady, everyone who drinks from this water, from this well, will be thirsty again. We're not talking about the physical. I've got something so much greater to give you Something that you've been searching for your entire life, whether you realize it or not. I'm offering you something that you've been on a quest for, and you've taken a lot of things to try to fill this hole and to fill this thirst in your life. And you've went after things again and again and again, and you see that they're broken, you see that they won't satisfy, they won't bring lasting pleasure, yet you keep going back to them again and again. Does that sound familiar? Right? Guilty. Guilty. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? But Jesus says in verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That's a bold claim. And as I honestly, as I studied this and just processed this, I couldn't help but to think back what I said a minute ago earlier about just how many of us as Christians we struggle with life. and We struggle with anxieties and depression. And we struggle with just getting up in the morning sometimes. And think, Jesus, you claim that we can find this living water that will satisfy. And it's water that will give us life. An abundant life. And life to its fullest. What, Jesus, are you talking about? What's going on here? What are you offering to us? And I love the wording, and there was no reason to try to improve it on it. My ESV study Bible, the notes, it said this. A person's deepest spiritual longing to know God personally will amazingly be satisfied forever through Jesus. Let me just read that again. A person's deepest spiritual longing to know God personally will amazingly be satisfied forever. Forever through Jesus. In God's presence, it's God's presence in you, God with you, God for you, not against you. It's hope, it's purpose, it's acceptance, it's blessing, it's forgiveness, it's eternal life that doesn't just start one day when you go to heaven, it's eternal life that starts now. It's God in you, God for you, and as a result, there's no guilt, as the song says, no guilt in this life. And there's no fear in death. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Imperfect humans who struggle. But we know in Christ we're forgiven. And we know that because we sin and we mess up or we don't get our cue exactly right, that we don't have a Father in heaven looking for the perfect opportunity to destroy us and hurt us and embarrass us and tell us what a failure we are. We have a Father in heaven who loves us, and we have a Savior who's sympathetic to our struggles and gives us a way of escape and provides his presence to us, and he's with us. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. And in that, we walk with confidence because God has spoken over us that you're my child. It's it's like what Richard just almost broke me up into tears here when he was saying, my son, and He just spoke blessing over His children. And maybe you didn't experience that from a dad in this life or a mom in this life. And the best you can get close to that is on occasional they murmur, I love you, to you. You need to embrace the fact that God is the perfect Father. And He loves you without condition. He accepts you because of Jesus. Not because you're great. Not because of what you do or don't do. He accepts you for Christ and Christ alone and the living water that he gives, which is himself, ultimately, and his spirit that he puts within us. In fact, that spring of living water welling up to eternal life, Jesus clarifies in a few chapters exactly what he means by that. In John 7, it'll be on the screen if you want to turn there. It's one of my favorite scriptures, John 7, 37 through 39. If anyone's thirst, he kind of goes back to this metaphor again. If anyone's thirsty, come to me, Jesus said. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, drinking from Jesus is believing in Jesus. Not just, I believe, but it's, it's embracing Jesus. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, we're not just making this stuff up, it's been recorded his, his, who he is, his history, what he's done, his, his power, his authority, his might, as the scriptures have said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What do we mean, Jesus? Verse 39, by this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So it's the Holy Spirit that lives within us. So it's just not that God is for you, and it's not that he's cheering you on and he gives you pep talks when you need it. It's the fact that he lives inside of us, and he's working his character and his glory out from the things that we do and don't do and the choices we make and don't make. And in the way of being God that is beyond our ability to even comprehend or understand, he takes the things that even we mess up on, the sins that we commit, and for his children, he works all those for the good of our lives, for his glory. God works those for our good and his glory. That's an amazing God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, chapter 8 of Romans. And in that, we rest. In that, we find our thirst is quenched. We believe, we trust, we put our faith. So, let's talk real personal here. Let me give you a little bit of gauge for your life. Came across this statement by a guy, I've never heard of him, named John Johnston on the Desiring God, or Jim Johnston from the Desiring God website, and he writes this. He says, joy is one of the vital gauges on the dashboard of the christian life joy joy is one of the vital gauges when the needle dips when you lose your joy you should take note you need to pay attention to your joy when our joy in jesus starts to dip take notice because you're probably running to a well another source of water that will not satisfy you And some of you, it's running back to the same old habits that have failed you again and again over the years, and you know that, but you're so conditioned just to run back there again. For others, it's looking for new things, the next things. Jesus gives us a sturdy joy that lasts even as we go through pain and heartache and anxiety and depression and trials because we know that He's for us and He's with us if God is for you, who or what can be against you? If Jesus was sent to die on the cross for us, God gave his own son, will he not give you everything else you need, Scripture says, to live this life? You trust that he's working for you, even in the struggles of life. And he's working, most importantly, for his glory. That's where we find joy. will you appropriate the gospel into your life and let me say this I, I read this read, you read pretty much anything you want to read these days and I was reading from a neurologist who said this and I thought it was interesting she said 66 days to create new neuropathways in your brain I know it sounds all smart and stuff but the, the bottom line is repetition going back just being consistent doing the same things again and again the good habits of the faith the means of grace again and again Stay consistent. Get a pattern. Get a routines that are going to help you lean into Jesus. So when the evil day comes, if it hasn't come already for you, you stand. You can stand. That's putting on the armor of God. And so it's not a magical, mystical thing that happens. God gives us the means of grace. Grace. And we take those ordinary things, and we just work them, and we do them. So let's talk about our head, hand, hands, heart, and I added a bonus one today, our health. Our head, only Jesus satisfies your thirst. We have to remember that. It has to be up here, and it has to stay with us and be on the forefront of our minds. But we know it, there has to be a heart change, because just, just intellectually, Ascending to something or saying we believe something won't change who we are. We engage the heart. We engage our emotions, our behaviors. And how do we do that? We admit that we seek other things other than Jesus to fulfill this thirst, to quench this thirst. We're just real with him. We're honest with him. God, I I have to admit to you that I run to my wife before I run to you to meet my emotional needs. And I have to start with you. Or, God, I must admit to you that I put way too much emphasis on my job. Instead of seeing it as an avenue, an opportunity to display your glory and live for you, I see it as something I have to go and do in order to provide, but leave it at that, end of the day. So where is it that you're searching for other things and you just need to admit to God, God, these are counterfeit gods, these are idols in my life. And then your hands, study the Bible in community. Maybe you were one of those who find yourself with anxiety, depression, and it's really serious, and you maybe have even been to the doctor already. It's not just a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem as well. And I encourage you, uh, I, this is a great book. Elizabeth reminded me of this in K group the other day. I had went through this some years ago. But this is by our own Chris Beam, who's not able to be here today. Sonia's here. But Chris Beam, it's a 40-day study to deal with anxiety and depression, really Scripture-based, super good. Got a couple of them back on the cart today. If you'd like to get those, we're going to keep those back there. I just totally had forgotten about it. A couple other ones that we've used before, Knowing God's Peace. It's really good. And this one's called Addiction and Habits Changing for Good. And these are both great books, and these will be back there, and I'll give these away to anybody who would like to have these, okay? But get in community. I know we have K-Group, and that's awesome. That's the first level of communion or community and, and Bible study together. But sometimes if you're going through these dark valleys, you need to meet with people one-on-one, one-on-two, and you need to be able to just pour this out and, 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 and just be honest about what you're going through and let the body of Christ support you and help you through your struggle. And then... I don't think we can neglect the health side of this because sometimes our struggles and the reason why that we just feel overwhelmed by life sometimes is we've just not allowed our physical health to be a priority. And we've gotten so busy doing everything else, but we won't take a few minutes a day for consistent exercise. And I would encourage you just to be, to to, to pick some exercise that's going to get your heart moving, your heart rate up and your, your body moving. And just be consistent with it. That will do amazing for you if you are sometimes just struggling with just the, the, the normal day depression and blues of life. Because God created us as a whole person. And so I encourage you to take this head, Jesus, you're sovereign, you're great, and you're going to quench thirst that I have in life if I run to you. The heart, it's going to admit the areas where I struggle. My hands, I'm going to get with other believers, and we're going to work through this together. And then my health, I'm going to make it a priority in my life. Jesus is the the thirst quencher. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and give it to you to the fullest. Will you respond to him? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your love, for your word, for the opportunity as a church to gather. God, I pray for... The one here who doesn't have a clue what we're talking about because they've never began a relationship with you they've never put their faith and trust in jesus and made the baptisms today the words of encouragement from colton the message the songs that we sing help them to see that we do worship and follow savior who's real he's true and he lives and we can face tomorrow and god i pray for the christian in here who has just uh, allowed life to just overwhelm them and they've run to other things other than you to fulfill those needs and to meet those needs. God, I pray that you will bring them back to the simple truth of Scripture and the simple truth that you reign, you rule, and there's nothing or no one can compete with your greatness. And God, I pray that you'll help us to make you our first and highest priority in everything in life. We pray in Jesus' name.